Oh, to be in the presence of the Lord and to call upon his name and to know that he's there, but also to feel that he's there, right? To feel that he is uh, with you and listens to you and cares about you. It's a pretty important thing, isn't it? And sometimes I think we can wonder where he's at or we can make an assumption that we know where God is at and act accordingly. Um, Sometimes we come to the scriptures, even the passage we heard read earlier, and we have what I call selective hearing. We're going to talk about selective hearing today. This is one of the Sundays in the United States where a lot of selective hearing goes on, and a lot of marriages undergo a lot of challenge and strife. Because I can remember, uh, it's probably two years ago now, because that's probably about the last time I cared about the Broncos. I had them on, I was watching them, and uh, watching the game, and I, I heard from the kitchen, you know, behind me, Rachel was saying something. It began to register in my mind. Um, I heard something about taking out the trash, so my mind computed, and eventually the word just came out, sure, I'll do that. It's Sunday, you know, it's, it's just our habit. On Sunday, we put it out, it comes on Monday, they pick it up. So I went ahead and did that, and then moved on, and got that done, and then a little bit later on after the game, I'd finished that up, and looking at her, and then it's kind of like this thing, and it, it began to register that I'd never even heard the rest of the sentence there. There had been another part to it of uh, getting some glasses ready, it's a water just on the table, so we can go and eat after the game, and, and I'd missed that. And... Uh, it uh, totally blanked it, but then when I thought about it, I'm like, I did hear those words, but they didn't register, <laughs> and, and I totally blanked out, and so I don't know, today, if you're watching the game, or maybe it's a movie that you're watching, and somebody talks to you, and they give you, uh, they're sharing something, you know you hear them, and, and yet, you're not really dialed in and tuned in. Uh, we do that with our kids, right? I learned very early on in teaching, both in teaching and in parenting, for my younger kids, don't give them a list of six things I want them to go and do, because none of them will get done. It'll be overwhelming. Give them one, have them come back, and then say, okay, now that you finished your room, I'd like for you to help with this. And uh, it can be a challenge. And yet, I think when it comes to being with the Lord, sometimes we can miss the point. We can miss what he's saying. It's like uh, being in that class as a teacher, and the the teacher hands you a test and says, here you go, Uh, your test for the day, the instructions are on the top, gives you a pencil, says you've got half an hour. And if I read the the opening, I put my name on top, and I just get right to work because I don't want to waste a minute. But if I just read one sentence more, it said, if you'd like an A+, plus, put your name on the paper and the date and turn it in immediately. Don't do any of the problems. No one in the class that day got an A+. Plus. Everybody just went on down, skipped that little paragraph, assuming it was like any other test. And they missed it. You know, that can lead to a little bit of a problem when we make assumptions or simply hear what fits with our perspective or what we assume is going to happen. And we can even do that with the scriptures. And often this leads to misunderstandings when we only hear part of thing or, or we're listening to somebody and we're already thinking about our answer in our head. And then maybe somebody we've talked to ourselves and they miss what we've said and our expectations are met and then, oh no, Bummer. And then sometimes we get offended or angry at that. 
You know, I think we've been talking about this idea of being offended entering into this tumultuous season 2020 in our country. And, and I think one of the reasons we're offended quite often as believers, um, one of the reasons we're quick to be offended is tied to this habit in our lives that we don't listen. Um, we engage in selective hearing and then we respond and we lob what I like to call these little grenades of truth bombs back to other people quoting verses or saying things that God believes or thinks about people, lob them on the internet or click like or forward or pass things on. And so as we look at these and we we talk through those, we realize that everyone is so right that they'd end up doing everything wrong. And in the process, we don't truly represent God. You know, after all, isn't that guy how God deals with us? Um, and our beliefs and our issues, our wrong views, our, our sins, our unbelief, isn't that what God does to us, right? He just scolds us and gets angry at us. It's frustrated and it's demanding and puts more and more weight on us. Only here's what he wants. No, that's not how God deals with us. There's an author um, and radio host, Brant Hansen, and he um, wrote a book entitled Unoffendable and got quite a few good ideas from there and he says wasn't I supposed to be angry at people for certain things isn't being offended part of being a Christian isn't it just something we sign up to do isn't it our right so you see we've been trying to soak in this question of what would it look like for followers of Jesus to be unoffendable what would it look like if we were the most unoffendable people in the world so far in the, the first paragraphs, if you have your Bibles open to First Peter, the first paragraphs he's poured out onto us all that God has done for us and claimed for us in salvation. He's also laid out, last week we talked about this idea of hope and everything that hope is in God. He's laying this foundation for us to understand how we are to go out and live in the world as exiles, he calls us, as those whose citizenship is not of this world world. Our eternal inheritance, our security, everything is in Jesus. And we can be confident in that. And so, as we begin to open up verses 13 through 25, and as you heard them read earlier, I wonder what stuck out, or even as you glance over them right now, what sticks out in those verses to you? Because there's a lot there, isn't there? Some of you are saying, well, what sticks out is my coffee hasn't kicked in yet. Um, and that's okay. Yeah, I wonder if, as you look at these, um, which of these verses uh, catch your eye's attention? Which of these verses catch your heart? Which of these verses uh, stick out to you? You see, I think when we look at these, depending on your background, maybe your upbringing, whether you were in church or not in church, what kind of church you went to, or how your parents handled you, or just how you view the world, can often color how we come to the scriptures and view them and create a selective hearing in our minds. And so I wonder what part are you prone to focus on? Are you prone to focus on these words that we read? Obedient, conformed, be holy, judges, fear, conduct yourself purified and truth does that kind of fit where, where you kind of fill fall in that line of that justice kind of thinking 
Or maybe uh, you look and you think of it this way. You think of the word hope is in there. Grace, impartiality, you're ransomed, faith, born again. And it ends with the words good news. You see, we all have selective hearing to a degree. We bring our lives to the scriptures and we can easily take them and run off with them, missing the context or the point or only getting a part of the piece of who God is. You might be somebody who's very angry that sin is not taken seriously. We're to be holy as God is holy. Or you could be somebody who is offended that grace isn't extended. Maybe you've been burnt by a church or by believers who treated you harshly and judged you for your sins, didn't offer any grace. The reality is that there's this tension in Scripture. Sometimes it's pretty hard to explain, but these, these two worlds that God lives in of being gracious and loving and being holy, perfect, and judging the world to heaven or hell. And we can hold these intentions, this idea. And this is not a new idea, really. Um, it's something that Paul struggled with. And, and early on, the church has always struggled with this. And Paul in Romans 6, the people are saying, well, we should just go on sinning all the more. Because the more you sin, the more grace you get, right? Shouldn't we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And he says, by no means. By no means. You should be in the Lord. And you have died to sin just as he died on the cross. And so now you can overcome sin. And yet, we look in here and there's some hard things that are said within here. He does desire us to stand for truth, just, justice, and mercy in our world, doesn't he? There's also a clear teaching that we stand forgiven. Our sin is atoned for, seen as righteous, guaranteed inheritance, living hope. So I wonder this morning, where do you lean on this scale? Um, do you lean more towards legalism or what we call performance, performing for God, wanting to please him and do, do, do? Or do you lean more towards grace, being forgiving, realizing that you're accepted, understanding that all of us have fallen short. You see, both of those things are true, and yet where you lean often reveals how believers or others are going to offend you the most. You lean to one side or the other, and we're not always on the two extremes of the churches and the people that pick it and declare people are going to hell. And then over here, there's so much grace that you wonder if the word of God has any authority left at all. <laughs> You're like, but doesn't the Bible, shouldn't we take sin seriously? And most of us fall somewhere within that spectrum. And really, it's a false spectrum. <laughs> it's not either or, as we're going to see this morning. It's quite a bit different. And the reality is that God fully embodies this more than we think. And so I want you to hang with me this morning as we walk through this and begin to pull apart some of our selective hearing and begin to see this passage as a whole and what God is teaching. And as we look at this, um, this teaching that often pushes us to being 
offended either at the world or offended by the world or offending the people of God or being offended at God because he didn't meet our expectations. And we end up fighting all the wrong battles. And so he begins in verse 13 and he says, therefore. And what do you do when there's a therefore? You say, what's it there for? You look above it. He's saying, because of all these blessings, because of the living hope you have, because of the inheritance that you have, prepare your minds for action. Being sober-minded, set your minds on the hope, on fully on hope that is brought through the Lord at the revelation of Christ. In other words, if you truly have living hope, if you truly believe everything and all these blessings are yours and that you're in exile, that your citizenship is in heaven, then here's how you should be thinking and living. Uh, the idea of being sober-minded is, is clear-focused thinking. It's thinking energetically, thinking clearly, putting an effort into your thought. And as we look at this, it, the main verb in this passage is to set your hope fully. You should underline it. Set your hope fully on the grace that is brought to you. Set your hope fully. To set your hope fully is to notice what God guarantees and guards and gives us by grace. So the main word you need to understand today that brings together all the tension that we've been talking about is the word trust. To set your hope fully is to trust that the Lord's word is true, what God says God will do. So do you trust in the Lord? I'm not talking about mere mental assent. That's why he says, set your hope in God. It says this. It says that you will become obedient children and not be conformed. To be sober-minded, to, to set and to be ready for action is to, John Piper says, to put your mind into the service of your heart. Hope is fueled by right thinking. All right, we talked about that last week. It's online if you missed it, but right thinking. Hope is having those positive thoughts, believing in a, a future that God is going to provide, even though it may not be right there in front of you. So hope is trusting in God. Now, when you set your hope, hope is trust in his word. But you see, there's a problem. You say, no, wait. I can become better by doing more and avoiding more sin. And you see this, that phrase, be holy as I am holy. And you say, I am holy. <laughs> I'm doing more than anyone else. And you begin to think it's based on your own efforts to gain this hope and your own work that puts you in front of the Lord. And then other people say, well, you know, holiness doesn't depend on you. It depends on God. So just relax. Don't get so worked up about sin. And the scripture begins to lose its authority once again. And the gospel becomes more of a get out of jail free card than a transforming from the inside out than true freedom. There are three authors that wrote a book, actually, Kevin referred to me, I got for Christmas, um, The Cure, Bill Thrall, John Lynch, um, Bruce McNichol. I have a lot to say about this idea of trusts. 
And uh, they say this, they say, until you trust God, nothing you do will please God. Pleasing God is not the means to godliness, it is the fruit of godliness in our lives. And so Peter says, obedient children are not conformed. To be conformed is to be shaped by something. What is shaping you? We have a lot of these conversations with our kids, right? And at our school that we're in, this idea of what is shaping you in this world of screen time and opinions and ideas flying in, left and right? What is shaping you? What beliefs impact you? What is your family of origin? How does that shape your view of God as Father? Some people have a hard time singing, he's a good, good father, because they didn't have a good, good father. It's hard to picture a father in a positive way. It impacts how we come to the scriptures. So he's saying, don't let the world impact your thinking, your hope. You need to be thinking clearly, sober-mindedly. You need to allow the word of God to impact you and to shape you and inform who you trust. (laughs) That's the hardest thing to read, right? Verse 15 He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Well, I'm out. (laughs) I can't be holy. (laughs) If he is holy, he's quoting from Leviticus here, and yet the call, one of the meanings and the understanding of this word holy here in the scriptures is to be set apart. That's why he uses that term exiles quite a bit. It's we're set apart by God. Just as the nation of Israel was set apart by God. To be holy is to be set apart for God's purposes. And in this context, it's not saying be perfect as I am perfect. It's like be set apart. Just as Jesus was set apart for his mission on earth. We are set apart for the work of the Lord. We are set apart to be shaped by the Lord. We have a new identity. A new citizenship. A new home, heaven to look forward to. And then it says that we are to conduct ourselves in this way. And he says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear through the time of your exile. When we look at fear, we can often have a challenge with that, right? The idea of fear and judgment. And a lot of people like to use that fear and judgment saying, well, you're going to hell. You're going to heaven. And it's saying, who gets to be the judge of that here? Is it believers that get to be the judge of that? Only Jesus Christ will sit on the throne and judge a person's eternal destiny. We are never called to do that in the scriptures. We are never called to sit there and determine. Now we're to judge fruit in other things and teachings. But ultimately this is saying he is the one who judges. And so we're to live with fear. But what does that look like to live with fear? Or to be in fear of this God who might smite us if we just go one inch off? Well, he begins to unleash us here and begins to tie it together because he says this. Look at verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that lamb without blemish or spot. Isn't that amazing? We're supposed to fear God. 
We're supposed to come to him and fear him. The number one weapon Satan uses in our life is fear. What do you fear? Who do you fear? And when it comes to dealing with fear, we must look at the cause or the object of the fear. Think of a child at night. They're scared in their bed. They're hearing something. And I open up the curtain and point out, see that gate? That's what's banging out there. It's just a gate. It's the wind opened it. Oh, okay, I see what it is now. I don't have to be afraid. Or you turn on the light and say, oh, that's just the shadow of one of your stuffed animals. You don't have to be afraid. It's what the scripture does. That's what he's done here with death and with what we're to look forward to. He's saying, you don't have to fear. Your salvation is guaranteed. Your place with me is guaranteed. It's guarded. You have a living hope. You have an eternal destiny. You have a purpose. You do not have to live in fear. And so when it talks about conducting ourselves with fear, we're looking at the one who gave his son for us. It's not saying the one who is going to punish you. They're saying fear the one who gave his one and only son to die for you and gave his precious blood for you that's quite a bit different and so when I see this I say living in fear is really living in humility it's like wow God you loved us so much it leaves you in awe and trembling that somebody could love you so much and give up so much while we were still sinners and rejecting God he did that for us and that's humility Conduct yourself with fear, with humility in this world. Understanding that you need Jesus just as much as somebody across the aisle from you. Just as much as somebody living in sin. Just as much as somebody who hates your guts. Who's angry at you. We're equal at the foot of the cross in need of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why it's so precious. What does this lead to? Well, this leads to this. He says this, it's amazing, he says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, in other words, he had the plan for Jesus in place, and then he was made manifest, he came, he lived it out, and then it says, for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. For the sake of you, he's done all of this. That should keep us humble. That should keep us in fear, not understanding what kind of love that is. When we love God, we do so because he first loved us and did so through his son. That's why it says here, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another from a pure heart since you've been born not of perishable but imperishable seed. We are to love God because he first loved us. And we trust those whom we love. So therefore we should trust God. And when we love God, we live for God in every way, every day, in every aspect and area of our lives. It's not separated out. Yet having dedicated yourself to becoming more like Christ, he's saying, then the church... The church should look like this authentic place where you come together and despite your preferences, you choose not to be offended and you come together and you love one another. 
And you accept one another where you're at in your journey. Why? Because we are all equally at the foot of the cross and because we're all equally trusting in God for our new identity that we, he says we have. And so we have this beautiful picture of a grace-filled church. And then we have this conclusion that you've got to stick in the word of God. It is the imperishable truth given to you to guide you and direct you. You need to be obedient children. And obedience flows from love. It's not separate from it. And so, as he begins uh, to tie this in and to challenge us, uh, we are challenged. Are we going to be like Christ? You know, Christ had all the reason to be offended. I mean, after all, 12 guys abandoned him in his greatest time of need. One of them betrayed him and then killed himself. And then his best leader denied him publicly three times. And so Jesus is risen again. He's walking on a beach and he sees some of them out fishing. He says, hey, cast your net on the other side. And they catch fish and they come in. And you'd think at this moment Jesus has some pretty good options. Um, Brant Hansen in his book lays it out. He's like, well, he could immediately get on them and he would have the right to do so and say, where were you? You let me down. You failed me. You didn't make it. You abandoned me. Give them a stern talking to. He could show them uh, the error of their ways, pronounce a harsh, deserved punishment. That's that legalism, right? Or he could just stop and cook them a hearty breakfast and spend time with them. That's what he did. He fried up some fish and ate with them. Why? Because Jesus is about repairing the relationship. He wants a relationship with you and I. And he begins with connecting with us and loving us and meeting us where we're at. And he doesn't let sin go unnoticed. He addresses it. He restores Peter. He says, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Questioning his love and his love is what's driving him to his action in following him. You see, Jesus is with us and his desire is not to demand perfection from you, but he wants progress in our lives to become more and more like him and to show the world him, right? We're set apart to let the world see who he is. And I love how this ends and begins with this whole chapter. It begins with the good news, begins with living hope, and then he ends and he said, and this is the good news that was preached to you. He ends with good news. Do you ever notice how unoffendable you are when you get good news? You, maybe you're driving home from work and you just got a bonus. You're like, yeah, we got some extra money to spend. And somebody cuts you off and you're like, you know what? You can go in front of me. Two other cars. Two other cars. Hey, anyone cut in front of me. Nobody can touch me today. Maybe you're in the doctor's office and, and your husband got that diagnosis and you're like, he's cancer free. They can't find it. And you get on your phone to, to go and spread the good news. And there's a text by somebody who's angry at you, or maybe a work email that you see, and you're like, you know what? Nothing can touch me today. Go out to a restaurant, and you've got great news. You're celebrating as a family, and the meal comes out cold. Usually you'd send it back, and you're like, you know what? Today I'm going to even give a bigger tip because I got good news. Nothing can break me down today. I'm pretty excited about what God is doing in my life. 
We don't live like that every day, do we? And yet, we possess the good news, the greatest news, better than the best news you've ever gotten in your life. Do you really believe that? That this is the best news, better than any news you've ever gotten in your life? That you have a living hope in Jesus Christ. So why are we so angry all the time, so worried? feel like the world is so out of control and then we become so offendable. Well, the reason is that we often fail to look at the good news and trust in it. And it comes down to this trust. Are you trusting in your works in God and striving towards God and trying to please God and trying to please others? Or are you trusting that what God has said is true and he will do it in your life. Abraham Hansen says this, he says, you and I are forgetful people. We get distracted. We don't always live in the reality of it. We need to be more attentive and by having more people and disciplines in our lives remind us of that great news will help us be remarkably slow to anger and offense. That's why we need each other. We need to be in communities. We need to sing songs that have truth ringing in them. And more than just on a Sunday, we need to be able to enjoy one another, but also lift one another up out of the mire so that we can look and see who God is. And so that you can come to a place where you know that you're loved just because of whose you are. We're not so much worried about everything about who you are because we know whose you are. You are the Lord's. And so choosing to be unoffendable means actually for real trusting God. Not just mentally thinking it. But actually for real trusting God with your identity, with everything that you are and really believing that you are forgiven. You don't have to walk in shame. Really believing that everything you do is a blessing and you're going to do it for the Lord, but that doesn't define who you are, whether there's fruit or not or growth or not. It's about being in relationship, sitting down and eating fish with your Savior and getting to know him personally. The authors of that book I mentioned earlier, The Cure, had an interesting picture of it. They said... Picture yourself standing with God. Right here. Me and Jesus. And right there in the middle of the court is piled up and it'd be pretty high my sin. What do you picture Jesus doing in that moment? Shaking his head down. You picture God the Father on the other side just like you're never going to get across that. Maybe you like to pretend it's not there, but then you have a hard time really connecting with Jesus because you know that you're just not living for him or with him. Well, the authors say, picture yourself standing with God in front of your sin, working on it together. Progress, not perfection. And so when Peter tells us that we're to prepare our minds for action, we need to have our minds in the right place. We don't want to get stuck up in this legalism and, and all of a sudden when we're standing above someone, we're not standing beside them. And the only one that stands above to judge is God. And yet we want to be a people of grace, 
that makes progress. Because why? It says one of the results of understanding grace is obedience. It's just a natural outflow. It's not earning God's favor. It's the joyful understanding that you trust his plan is better than yours. And so that's the challenge for us as we put our stake in the ground this year and say, we are for your joy. And if you're for others' joy, then you have to strive to find that and keep that in each other's hearts and choose to be unoffendable and for real trust in God. And you're not going to do it perfectly, but we can make progress together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's so hard sometimes with our personalities and just struggles. And, and Lord, we try, we're trying to figure out how best to serve you and represent you in a world that seems to be against you. And yet you've got complete control. <laughs> you've got a hope set out for us. And because of that, that's where we're to put everything we have, our trust in the grace of God. And you, who would send your son and give his precious blood for us still sinners so that we may be rescued into your family. And as we sung and talked about even earlier today, that Lord, you're always with us. You never leave. We don't have to go looking for you to come into our presence. We, you dwell in us if we follow you. And so, Lord, if there's anyone here today who's, who's never accepted that gift of grace, that trust that Jesus has paid it all, that they don't have to earn God's favor, that their identity can be changed and made new. There is no shame, no guilt. All is forgiven at the foot of the cross. May today be the day you say, I want to know more. I want to trust in Christ. For those of us who've come to you and understand that gift of salvation, Lord, let us not go on thinking it's our own works that earn your favor. But let us be a place where people can come as they are. Take off the mask, look at one another and say, hey, I'm not having a great week. Can you help me get my eyes up to where my hope comes from? We just pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.